America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 162 for January the 15th, 2009. No, 2020. I was having trouble typing that in the show notes today. So I'm having trouble being able to say it as well. My name is Wes Fryer and I am the technology uh, integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City in the village where finally, I don't know, man, we, we had 30 minutes literally of snow last weekend, of uh, just flurries. And so our little puppy, uh, experienced that, but we will not talk at length about weather. Although the dog may make a, a short cameo. I'm excited that I'm not doing this show alone because I wouldn't do it alone. I'm with Dr. Jason Neifer from Missoula, Montana, who I'm guessing has had more than 30 minutes of snow flurries in the last, you know, few weeks. Probably. Yes, uh, it is uh, 12 degrees outside right now in Missoula. It's not as bad as in north central Montana. My parents live in Great Falls, the town I grew up in, and they hit negative 22 uh, uh, it was near last night or two nights ago, so it's a bit chilly there, but not a ton of snow there, but we're starting to get quite a dusting here. And it's interesting because uh, uh, west of me, I have friends in Spokane and in upstate Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, to be specific, and I've been seeing videos from there of large snow dumps that people are um, – uh, uh, shoveling away, and that has not made it over to Western Montana yet. But that we're not here to talk about the weather. Instead, it's about technology. And I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula. And this whole ditty here is the EdTech Situation Room, where once a week, Wes and I scour the headlines looking for interesting stories. And then we try to take a look at what's going on in the tech world and maybe apply it to the education world. And if you want to see the article that we're talking about and see some of the source material, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com. Uh, Dr. Fryer always posts our show notes there, as well as our document where we have tons and tons and tons and tons of links for your review. And in a lot of cases, uh, well more, or well more, way more links than uh, we can uh, otherwise talk about in, in our hour show each week. So, Wes, I guess um, this is about the time I should ask you where you want to start, but I do think that there is two interesting headlines, although there may be some breaking news at the prior. Uh, well, actually, the breaking news is going to be our dog, who um, has gained five pounds in the last three weeks, and my <laughs> wife is going to attempt Wrestling. to wrestle him. Uh, he did draw blood on my ear. Maybe you just need to hold him. So oh. this oh. is Moose. Oh. Hey, buddy. <laughs> he likes to mouth. So, yeah. you know, the key is to, the, be, the best thing to do is to have something that he can chew that you can just like put right in his mouth. But he's actually, uh, not right now, but doing a better job, sometimes not always wanting to bite. So anyway, yes, Moose um, his ear. was his born. Oh, weird. yeah, your ears are weird, Moose. <clears throat> he was born on October 15th, So, and he's doing pretty good. We haven't had any accidents in quite a while, and there you go. There something you go. completely not at all. Yeah, I'm sure we could probably draw a, a few more live viewers with, you know, the yep. Golden Retriever puppy he's live shot. Heavy. So, but I digress. Uh, I don't know. Why don't we start off with Internet Explorer? That was your article. Do you want sure. to? Yeah. In uh, fact, there's two big Microsoft announcements from this week. Uh, yesterday, January 14th, Windows 7 entered end of life stage, which means that for the vast majority of Windows 7 users, it is no longer uh, a, a viable operating system from a security standpoint because it will no longer receive security updates. And of course, that's super interesting because of how long Windows 7 kind of held on to its ninja grip on, on large enterprises, which uh, uh, would also include schools. And it's interesting because it's been an interesting challenge. Um, we've experienced this twice now in, in my organization, uh, Montana Digital Academy. And the reason why is because we support students in 200 plus schools at any given time, plus a very large variety of home computers. And one of the things that has been an interesting phenomenon is that, you know, we oftentimes, uh, well, oftentimes, but we will occasionally get a uh, you know, a relatively pushy response to a support ticket when we say that you know, we can't support 
you know, uh, end of life operating systems. These are no longer supported by Microsoft, which means that we really can't support them. Uh, uh, and you would need to upgrade to a newer version of that. And it's, it's also true that in a lot of cases, those operating systems function just fine, but that's not us drawing that line. Uh, that is our vendors drawing that line. And we've had support briefs from a number of vendors in the last, well, really in the last year, but uh, intensified in the last 14 days that Windows 7 is no longer a supported operating system uh, for our vendors. So if something's truly going wrong and we pull in a vendor technical support desk, you know, they will tell us that, you know, that the most obvious problem is you're not using the latest operating system, or I'm sorry, a supported operating system. And whether or not that is the cause of the problem, unfortunately, that's oftentimes what we'll hear when we bring in the big dog technical support from, from other organizations. So certainly an issue, uh, an interesting phenomenon, but Windows 7 is no longer supported. So I will say from my standpoint, um, as family IT guy, I did upgrade my last computer uh, to Windows 10 uh, last week. My father-in-law's computer uh, is was was actually a very very good uh, uh, i7 computer from seven years ago. Uh, eight gigs of RAM, um, more than fast enough. But because he uses his personal computer, and with the personal computer has financial data and. Um, you know, stuff on there that, that could potentially be an issue, uh, if there's a security compromise, I had to nudge him and, and force him to, to update to Windows 10. So that, that happened, uh, last week, uh, and he is good to go. But I would imagine there are a lot of schools that, that have put in pushing to get rid of those Windows 7 computer, Windows 7 computers, or I have not quite got there yet. So I know, Wes, you are a former, uh, maybe one would say recovering IT director from your institution, and now you're obviously in a more classroom role. Were there any remaining Windows 7 computers on your campus? No, uh, that was a was a transition that we were able to complete as far as Windows 10. And Windows, you know, was, and I think still is, fairly generous in terms of, of upgrade. Um, we ended up having to, we did purchase a block of licenses, but to my knowledge, we have gotten everyone updated and, um, you know, we've also, you know, switched over some labs. Um, but, but all, but, but everything is up to date. So the, the greatest pain points that we had with that actually were re- with respect to firmware, uh, on some Dell, you know, all in one. Mm-hmm. Right. So the other related article that you, you have put in there on Microsoft was the Chromium browser and that, um, launched I guess today on the 15th. Yep. So this was the, the verge, um, talking about Chrome, Chromium, uh, for both Windows and Mac OS. Right. And so, uh, the Edge browser, which is the, the new Microsoft browser that came with Windows 10 in 2015, um, has really been the third place browser since it was launched. I liked, uh, Edge. I thought Edge was a vast improvement over Internet Explorer, but it had some missing features for me, including I do use a lot of browser extensions as part of my daily work. I live on the web. Uh, 99.5% of the work I do is through a web browser, and so it wasn't as clear of an option to me. And then I think it was about a year ago uh, Microsoft announced that they're doing something that it's my understanding. Rumors say that actually Apple's thinking about doing too, but they updated an ancient web kit that was uh, the background of both Edge and Internet Explorer to Chromium, which is the open source browser that Google develops as part of the open source community. It's not Chrome. Chrome is an adapted version of Chromium, but uh, uh, Chromium is a, it, you can download Chromium itself and use it as a browser or as Microsoft has done. It's taken the underlying code, built stuff on top of it, and then they've been running a beta for the last eight, nine months, open beta, and then today it's official. And slowly, Windows 10 users will be pushed over to this new version of Edge. And I have to say, I like it. It's, it's, it's fast and crisp. They did build a lot of Microsoft looking stuff on top of it. So the kind of edge feel to it, the look and feel of edge remains in Chromium edge, but I love it that I can download 
uh, Chromium extension, I'm sorry, Chrome extensions. And so you don't have to worry about the fact that developers weren't really developing for the Edge browser. And so all the stuff I do to make my browser better, in fact, I'm looking at, I'm in my personal Chrome account right now. And um, I have, you know, a dozen or so extensions that are live and another dozen or so that I have temporarily shut off with uh, extensive extensity, which is a, um, past geek of the week from, from our, our, our past podcast, but, um, and I can now do that on, on, on edge. So really interesting development. The article says that history sync and extension sync don't work or they didn't at launch. Is that working now? Uh, as far as your extensions, or did you have to, did you have to reinstall them each time you like loaded the browser? Well, so interesting. I, I didn't run into that today because I actually didn't have a synced profile. So it is interesting they aren't syncing those because that would impact my use of the browser. And in fact, um, because I, I did, I create a fresh profile today for my work account and did uh, play with it for a little while. I happened to be on a PC for a couple hours today, which usually I'm a Chrome OS guy almost 100%. But um, yeah, that's interesting. That would be a feature that would be pretty critical for me. And that could be something that they add the the thing that I was most interested in this article <clears throat> talking about the differentiators or privacy um, yeah. and we talked last week in the show about how Apple returned to CES and they were really you know peddling privacy and promoting uh, their support of privacy this article says that Google is phasing out third-party cookies and trackers in Chrome but not for two years so for the next two years alternative browsers edge Firefox uh, Safari, they are going to, well, and I guess not, and then, and then this, you know, Chromium by Microsoft. Um, it says that if you're familiar with Ghostery, you'll be familiar with uh, Microsoft's built-in edge protection. Gives you uh, three different levels to avoid being tracked. And I think this is a fascinating thing, right? Lots of people today uh, don't care, quote unquote, really about privacy on the web. And... Uh, I think, hey, Shelly, I think the dog needs to go out. We've been watching the dog, and when he approaches the door, he actually has scratched a few times. So anyway, apologize. Apologize for that squirrel. Um, so anyway, it's it's interesting that, that a lot of folks don't care about privacy. And so I don't know. Is this going to be a reason for you, Jason, to consider if, if Google doesn't fade out or phase out um some of those tracking, I get you can install, install extensions today in Chrome like Ghostery that I think do block tracking. Uh, what are your thoughts about the privacy features here? And do you think um, that's a compelling reason to think about this in schools? Would this be a browser to make available in a school situation with a one to one or, you know, a lab or something like that? I absolutely do think it, it belongs in, in amongst the browser choices. And by the way, I, I get that this is a little bit of a pain, but I really think a, a real power user uh, ability is to have multiple browsers on your computer. Like, not only it, it may mean less. I mean, I guess in my mind, the good news about about Edge built on top of Chromium is that it's more likely if the Chromium base becomes the de facto language for the web uh, developed as an open source project. Yes, Google runs the project, but it's an open source project with open standards, that to me is a win for all of us, right? Because that means web developers can aim in that one broad audience, it's more likely to work. But part of what I, I, well, previously didn't really like about Chrome OS, it's different now because you can technically install Firefox on a, a Chromebook. Uh, it now runs Linux, which means you can install the Linux Firefox version, and so you can have both browsers. But, you know, every power user I know keeps, you know, at least two browsers available to them because oftentimes if it doesn't work in one, it'll work in another. And uh, today, or this week, you know, it's, it's finals week at the Digital Academy. We have, uh, you know, uh, uh, 2,000 students across the state taking finals with us this week, and it's a time when our support desk dramatically increases in, in traffic, and, you know, one of the things that is, we sometimes will get an eye roll from folks when we suggest this, but uh, it, it's really amazing to me that even in 2020, 50% of the time, switching browsers will fix a lot of immediate issues in regards to web pages, and, um, you know, so uh, I'm looking forward to Edge actually being available on the Linux platform, because 
because then I will definitely install Edge onto my Chrome OS devices as part of my multiple multiple browser strategy. But absolutely, I think that that school districts, if you're not already headed in that direction, um, and my guess is is that Microsoft has already been in touch with large school enterprises to say we'd love for you to move towards the new Edge right away so they can help test this in an educational environment. But my early review is that it's a good solid browser. I am like obviously I'm concerned about privacy, but I also think that some of the hand wringing that happens over privacy uh, is not as 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 fair as I think it needs to be. If you are worried that Google's tracking you, and yet you are a Facebook user um, and you're you're accessing Facebook, uh, whether it's on an app or on a browser, there's a lot more tracking going on there, I think, than in the typical uh, Google search and Google world. And also, uh, you know, most ad systems, which there are ad systems owned by every major uh, 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 computer manufacturer and, and operating system peddler uh, short of Linux um, uh, available in the marketplace. Uh, Chrome OS tracks you. I'm 100% sure that in the Safari browser, Apple does own ad networks. Um, I do think that there's probably some tracking going on there, and I think it's happening with Microsoft as well. Like it's, I, I am concerned about the tracking, and obviously when I you know, search for something in in a Google search on one computer, and ten minutes later I see an ad pop up on Instagram, um, I'm concerned about that. But we're far from getting to a point where we can say we can protect ourselves from it, short of completely disengaging from technology. Another thing I mentioned about this article, it's a little bit odd, is Microsoft actually released this Edge browser for Windows 7, even though yeah, official support for that. But have I, can, can enterprise users, I think for some of the server versions of Windows, you know, enterprise users can continue to pay and receive updates. Is that true for 7.2 that they're letting enterprise users Yes. Keep on trucking. So that would be the reason right. probably for the release of this for Windows 7, even though for consumers, um, you wouldn't be able to, you know, have official support from Microsoft. And I've seen references on Reddit in discussions about the end of life of Windows 7 that a lot of big institutions that have gone, gone all in on Windows 7, uh, banks, large industrial applications, uh, the embedded version of Windows 7, which is you know, things you might find in an x-ray machine or industrial factory robot. Uh, I believe that the end of life is later on those types of applications, but also you can buy updates. And I think it's, I think it's for a long time too, like three to five years more updates yeah. for that. Um, but they make that expensive, right? They don't want people doing that just because they are unwilling uh, right. to update the Windows 10. Yeah. That needs to be a there needs to be a real financial reason behind. You got to pay, and you got to be enterprise too. You can't yeah. be an individual yeah. to do that. Um, yeah. It also mentioned in the article that you know Google Meet and Google Stadia were not uh, working within the the beta period of Edge. Um, I had my first experience with the new Google Meet. You know they've they have mm -hmm. Hangouts, but now Google Meet is not a consumer Gmail product. You have to use it with G Suite. But we had our first uh, EdCamp OKC organizer meeting this past Monday. And anyway, it worked worked great. So I think I'll give it a try. You know, we've continued to offer Firefox and it's a kind of a baby duck syndrome thing with a lot of people as far as like what browser they really love and, and use a lot. And, uh, you know, we've got a handful of folks that, that love Firefox and that's, that's, that's their, their browser. But for the same thing that you said, it's always good. Of course, on a Mac, you've got Safari that comes built in, but it's good to have, have other options. And, you know, where at one point Chrome was just the absolute fastest, you know, beating all other competitors, um, Safari sped up a lot and Firefox um, has done a lot as well. So yeah. I might segue us to actually another browser article, but not about Microsoft. This I put under security. Um, and this was on January the 10th from Digital Trends. The U.S. government says you need to update Firefox right now. In fact, uh, our, our technology manager uh, emailed this out to everybody. And these kinds of warnings are not super common. Um, so this was from the United States Department of Homeland, Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, never heard of that before, um, is encouraging those with a Firefox browser to update to version 72.0.1. Um, and it says an attacker can exploit a vulnerability to take control of an affected system. This vulnerability was detected in exploits in the wild. And so I thought that was was kind of interesting. So did you all speedily let everyone at the Digital Academy know that Firefox uh, 
you know, needed needed to be updated. Otherwise, you know, hacks could be imminent. Um, well, we do forward on articles that we get in regards to updates. It, we're in a unique position because the uh, all of our teachers remote to us, and they provide their own technology. And I don't worry about uh, teachers that are using laptops from school because I know those are usually extremely well managed. But teachers that use home technology, it's something we do think about and try to provide guidance on because, and, you know, I know this from being, you know, home IT guy or family IT guy is that, you know, it, it it's not good security practice, right? Good uh, uh, updating practice is not something that's automatic. And the typical end user, even very savvy users, my in-laws are a good example of this. Both my mother-in-law and father-in-law are pretty advanced tech users. They don't like to talk about that or say that because they don't think they are, but they're, they're pretty good with tech. And yet, um, you know, I, I help them run updates. I push them to run updates. I tell them not to ignore updates. My mom, who's been using computers since the early 80s and used to use a CPM-based K-Pro to do accounting uh, in the early 1980s, I mean, I have to nudge her to, to do updates. Um, and if that's true of tech-savvy home users, it also has to be true of professionals that, uh, you know, maybe aren't of the nerd set. So, yeah, good, good safety advice. And that's true of really all your software. There's really no reason to avoid updates, period. I'm actually trying to open up. Uh, I've got the latest version of iOS and trying to open up a Google Doc in there. It keeps jumping me over to the app. So obviously on the iOS platform, we're not going to be, be seeing Edge, but um, you know, continue to have multiple multiple browser options there. And the good news is it doesn't tend to make that big of a difference. Uh, maybe it does in a security context in terms of things that you know are out there if you're not you're not updating, but uh, Hmm. Um, I will tell you there is a an edge beta on iOS. Is there? Okay. Yeah. So. All right. Cool. Um, and it actually looks it, it looks. I, I have to say, Microsoft has a new design language they've been using. It's been for a couple of years now, but they 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 have been able to maintain that consistently over all the platforms. And I that's a that's a, a page they. Well, I don't know if they borrowed this from from Google and Apple, but I think it's smart that they kind of have everything look the same. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a lot of discussion about Microsoft, but hey, you know what? Here on the EdTech Situation Room, we uh, tend to not want to simply pigeonhole ourselves in a single kind of technology. So we're going to talk about more sorts of things. Here's a quick one that's kind of interesting. Probably three or four weeks ago, I mentioned an article that was kind of weird about drones that were being sighted in eastern Colorado and western Nebraska. They were flying at night in formation and is really weird. Well, uh, the Associated Press today on January 15th released an article, Snopes, and there were a couple other outlets, of course, that reprint AP articles. <clears throat> the title is Theories Persist About Mystery Drones Seen in Rural Region. And uh, the summary is that the Colorado authorities have um, announced that it, nothing to worry about, folks. Uh, most of these were just hobbyists, most of and they were flying some kind of a heat-seeking plane or some kind of detection plane that was able to to, to find these. Uh, but basically, they aren't announcing what it was. Um, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, F.E. Warren is a uh, Air Force base that has missiles that's out there. The article actually says, and, and this probably isn't a surprise, you know, that, that Air Force bases, military installations have anti-drone technology to be able to shoot down drones that might be penetrating their airspace. Um, again, which is something I, I guess, you know, we should just all assume, but I hadn't actually read that in an article before. Um, but they are, are trying to calm the public and saying nothing to look at here, folks. Um, but there's a number, there's a lot of people that have had issues because these, uh, drones, you know, alarm animals and, it, you know, they're, they're causing some physiological responses from, from those that are out there. But there were also some articles I saw, and this is where Google News is also great because you can see related coverage and it'll show you a whole, you know, a whole bunch of articles. Um, folks are, are saying there, you know, nothing illegal here because if it's uncontrolled airspace, there are, you know, there are rules about operating drones and they're talking about, you know, having more restrictions, but in the current restrictions that, are in place. Evidently, there's nothing here that is illegal. So educational connection there would be, you know, uh, not only flying drones, but uh, coding drones and the support that goes around them is, is going to continue to be a big deal. And so uh, one of our, I think I might have mentioned this on the show, but our makerspace teacher was telling me, I guess he had been reading articles about UPS hiring and 
using drone delivery, not, not as much just to, you know, bring your packages from Amazon, but, you know, take blood plasma, deliver vital, um, you know, medications, uh, things like that. I, I would wonder, Jason, if in a very rural and even much larger state than Oklahoma, Montana has got lots of wide open spaces. Um, have you heard anybody say anything about, you know, drone delivery of uh, medicine or, or blood plasma or anything? Or is that something that community colleges are doing, you know, training about? Do you, you hear anything about drones like that? I've not heard anything like that, but I, I have I have heard references to the fact that, that drones could really help a state like Montana in exactly those things, right? I mean, the it, it I see it in terms of the, the challenge of weather here, right? Like, Montana is a large state, right? If you uh, uh, start in Missoula in western Montana and head eight hours uh, uh, west of us, you're in Seattle. If you head eight hours east, you're still very much in Montana, and that's something that you know, blow some people's minds when you start to take a look at a map, right? We have we have a county that has a um, a, a larger uh, area than 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 Rhode Island. So you know it's it's a big state, um, but I do think that's really interesting when it comes to you know, delivery of critical things in weather. There are a lot of folks that live very remotely uh, in, in in Montana. I'm not talking about towns. I'm talking about people that are nowhere e- nowhere even near a two horse town. Um, um, or post office or, uh, you know, even in places where emer- emergency medical care is available. We have a very large, um, Helivac, uh, um, uh, uh, system here where you can, we can get, you know, ambulances, air ambulances to, to locations in very remote areas. But there are instances, I'm sure, where that would not be necessary if a drone is available. But yeah, I think that technology is extraordinary. But, you know, like we've talked about in the original article we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago about the mysterious drones that you were speaking of, I, I do think we need to re- be regulating this more, right? I don't think it's healthy for us to, to have hobbyists and commercial applications flying willy-nilly. Sound like an old guy there complaining about the new technology. That's everything's flying willy-nilly um, everywhere. But we, we have to get some point to where that, 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 that is more strongly regulated. Agreed. I successfully downloaded the Disney Plus app and logged in with my password manager to be able to say this. Uh, you know, we've we did a little trial and have been enjoying Disney Plus as a as a new option. There's a, a 2019 movie by Disney called Togo, the untold true story. Um, and it is about the 1925 champion dog sled trainer and his lead sled dog Togo. And it's up in Alaska. And so evidently they had to transport antitoxin serum to a small town and and of course, storms and things like that are not only uh, you know tough on traditional ways of traveling, but also drones. So I'm not necessarily yep. sure a drone would would solve that. Anyway, interesting to think about how how those things uh, may may affect our lives and and change some things. So. Where uh, would you like to go next? Well, let's do some technology correction articles. And for those that are new to the podcast, we refer to kind of the scaling back or reconsideration broadly of technology. I would say generally 2017 and on as the tech correction, right? That, that, that we appear to be trying to figure out where all this stuff fits. Lots of interesting articles this week here. First, um, Instagram has uh, announced new functionality where they will identify to end users and potentially hide and deprioritize posts that are considered to be fake photographs, right? But as many of you know, the Instagram happens to be somewhat um, uh, dominated by heavily altered photos, right? In fact, Instagram started as a, uh, well, that's not entirely true. They were, I think, our location uh, uh, check-in service to start with, but they eventually pivoted to this photo sharing site. And as it turns out, one of the, the, the earliest things was adding filters to uh, photos. That's what, what Instagram's early brand name was all about. And then, of course, if you spent any time on Instagram at all, you know that putting dog ears on people or having a something sit over your head and decide which Disney character you are and, you know, that whole notion that it's, it's heavily modified photos has really been the Instagram brand, right? Like, it's photos, yes. It's certainly a lot of photos of foods and sunset, but it's also, you know, heavily altered photos with filters. Well, now, 
digital artists, not that are using filters, but, you know, actual digital artists are developing um, heavily modified images or drawn images or adding, you know, you could say filters, but when it when it's more of an artistic thing, it's probably artistic license that may look like a filter, but it's probably a little more complex and nuanced than that. They're getting deprioritized in feeds and they are not happy about that. And I think this kind of goes to the fact that it's just not as easy. Everyone wants this to be easy, like we can uninvent this technology, but unfortunately that's just not the case, right? Like I get why there is value in telling people that a photo is not a photo or it looks like something suspicious with this, but as it turns out, a lot of heavily modified photos are done so for artistic purposes and not to deceive you or to, you know, try to sway a political election. So that hard balance is a, you know, really big part of this. And, and Wes, uh, we're, we're obviously friends on Instagram. So we, we see photos back and forth, but my guess is, is you're not going to Instagram to get the latest news. Uh, I am not. Um, I, I enjoy Instagram uh, and I, and I post there, you know, sometimes cross posting, sometimes, posting some different things, but, um, yeah, it is not, not somewhere that I'm getting news. I was asked, you know, a couple weeks, was it two weeks ago? We almost went to war against Iran. It was crazy. We went up to the, the brink, um, and our daughters, uh, were, you know, dad, are we, is World War Three happening? Are we, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, memes, you know, and they were seeing so many different memes and it is amazing. Even young kids, lots and lots of our middle schoolers are on TikTok. And, uh, memes are everywhere. And so anyway, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not where I get my news, but it is where a lot of folks have their eyeballs and, you know, news as well as entertainment and all other kinds of things. You know, what, what do you want? It's probably, if if it's something you can, you can click and scroll through, then it's probably going to be something that, you know, Facebook and Instagram are going to experiment with heavily and, and possibly provide. So. I think it's good they're responding, but you know, we've, I think it was last, yeah, last week we had an article about, you know, just, it was, you know, Facebook just banned deep fakes, but the policy has loopholes. I mean, there's all kinds of, of issues that this is fraught with. So yeah, technology is not going to save us and AI is not going to solve this, you know, tomorrow, uh, or maybe forever. I don't know. I mean, we don't have technological solutions for this and we're, here's my new metaphor, by the way. So, in terms of the information environment and where we are, it's like we're having to walk through a hurricane and uh, and that's all this information and we are just being battered. We're not inside a climate controlled vehicle at all being protected from the elements. It's like we're naked trying to walk through, you know, devastating winds, hail, just, uh, you know, tornadoes, just it's crazy. And I feel like, you know, in terms of, of being a parent, there's a lot of frustration and, and and remorse even I think about how we can't we can't protect children today to the degree we could in the past from a lot of darkness and and you know even current events uh, there was a good NPR I heard yesterday or this morning about you know talking to kids about difficult news and 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 how we do that so anyway the tech correction uh, is part of our awareness I think of some of those negatives that technology is bringing to us, to, to our lives personally, you know, screen time effects and addictions and things like that, but also, you know, politically. And <clears throat> there is not an easy answer. Media literacy is going to continue to be important. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I uh, was encouraged this summer at, at, you mentioned Rhode Island at Providence, Rhode Island at the, the uh, Digital Literacy Institute to really Take on the mantle of being, you know, a digital literacy, media literacy educator. That's what I've, they, they've said, what do you want outside your door? I said, you know, me, uh, media lab at our number and West Fryer digital and media literacy. That's what I do. So we need to be doing more of that because, uh, you know, there's certainly not, there, there's all kinds of things, policies and things that, that companies can do and governments can do, but there's not going to be something that will quote, solve and fix all of that. Speaking of, there was also a great article in the New York Times over the weekend, uh, it called Tech Lash Hits College Campuses. And this, I mean, if, if you need any other real symbol of how the tech correction's happening, this article details, uh, talking to mostly recent college graduates and also those that were kind of sucked into the tech job bubble 10, 12 years ago, that a lot of recent college graduates are, uh, moving away from going to big tech companies because 
because they feel like that that their skills would be used for ethically challenging ways. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, uh, companies like Facebook and Google and uh, to a different extent, Amazon uh, are obviously become very controversial in the last couple of years. And a lot of hot talent from, in a lot of cases, very, very, very respected schools and, and computer science and, and other college degrees, uh, engineering degrees that otherwise would have been um, uh, looking for, you know, uh, what someone might perceive as a jackpot, right? A, 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 a job in Silicon Valley with a six-figure salary and millions of perks that a lot of folks are saying that they don't want to work for companies that they perceive to have ethically challenging practices. And I am very interested in that notion. I always believe, I think one of my core beliefs as a teacher is that that, you know, teaching is important because the people you're teaching now may save you later, right, and probably will change the world in a way that benefits you down the road. And it's interesting that 20-somethings are eschewing this notion of vast riches and, you know, fast stock options because they necessarily uh, challenge the models, the economic models of those systems. So, Wes, I wanted to, to express this of you because I know you happen to have someone in the family that's a, a relatively... Uh, a uh, uh, soon college graduate and what's the job market looking like for, and, and it's, is he computer engineering or another kind of engineering? So he's mechanical engineering, which is typically yep. the largest, you know, engineering degree. Uh, his minor is computer science. Um, there's a, there's a fancier phrase for it of like intelligent systems, but basically he wants to code hardware. Um, that's what he's done the last, you know, couple cool. summers, um, this last summer. And then, then this whole year, he's continued to work with a professor who has, uh, you know, projects with both flying and ground-based drones. And, and so, um, we had a chance to actually go out to Tinker Air Force Base after Christmas and visit with them a little bit. And, um, you know, he has, doesn't have a job yet. Uh, he had, had several interviews and things at the, the fall job fair. And I think in February, the next job fair is coming up. Um, but he, you know, one of the clarifications he's told people is, you know, he doesn't want to go, you know, code, you know, like for Facebook and Google. I mean, he's not making web pages. He doesn't want to do that kind of thing. You know, it's writing code for embedded systems and hardware and robots, drones and stuff like that. Yep. Very interesting. And All then right. a couple other quick hit articles here under the tech correction. Um, uh, there's a great time article. We don't need to dump, jump into this, and I know, but it kind of fits a theme we've been talking about the last couple of months. Uh, you've probably heard that blue light's bad for you at night because, um, you know, it does something, prevents sleep patterns. Um, this is one study, and if you learn anything about research, is that one study is meaningless compared to, you know, a number of replicable studies, but... The latest research seems to suggest that the blue light thing is actually bogus and it doesn't really have an impact on sleep. And so if you're interested in that topic, uh, Time has a great article from, I think it's January 10th, something that that's worth your time at looking at. And then um, you have an article, sir, about media literacy. Yeah, this was from Ed Week on January 8th, and it says more states say they're teaching media literacy, but what that means varies. Uh, 14 states have addressed media literacy and put it into law. And, you know, there's advocacy groups like Media Literacy Now that is trying to promote that. Um, you know, I think it is important for us to talk about, but it's also important to say that we're not just, you know, nothing is going to, quote, save education with, you know, mandates. Um, you know, they're... It, politically, you know, the winds, you know, blow and they come and come and go in terms of what, you know, Common Core was all the rage not, not too long ago. Um, so I, I'll say this. I mentioned Providence, Rhode Island and that digital uh, and media literacy institute. There was a big team from Brazil that came because Brazil has mandated nationally that, you know, media literacy be an important part of the curriculum. And so um, I, I, I do think it's really, really important. There's, of course, so many things that are important in education. Uh, and most teachers or, or many teachers uh, certainly feel, you know, overloaded with mandates. And, you know, it's just hard to, to have the time to be able to uh, do what you, you want to do. But that's, I think, related to the tech correction. And here is one of my predictions. We've heard, we've talked about this before. We're not a political show, but we'll reference, you know, different political things. 
multiple authors that we have talked about in the past and articles we've shared say that we we ain't seen nothing yet when it comes to politics and the ways in which we're going to see disinformation, you know, utilized, weaponized. We've got lots of shadowy folks, uh, non-state actors, state actors building Facebook followings. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about how that, um, website that creates people's faces now, you know, is being utilized by people to make these different groups and these sound innocuous and Hey, you know, you know, something that's, you know, very, uh, you know, pro America patriotism, pro military, pro, you know, Christian, there's these different causes, but the reason these things are being built is so that those groups, you know, we can push buttons and pull levers to, to make people upset, emotional, share things, think things. So anyway, that is uh, in that whole tech correction category of, of media literacy. Um, I'll do a quick one that I put down underneath miscellaneous. So this is from NPR on January 10th. And the title is Boeing employees mocked FAA privately in emails before the 737 MAX disasters. And if you either listen to or read that article, um, my takeaway was this is a great case study in in why email retention is important to be aware of, right? Every organization has some kind of policy about how long they retain email. And I won't belabor the, the long story, but but basically a couple summers ago when when I was the director of technology for our school, <clears throat> you know, I had to respond to a uh, a lawsuit and a judge's order and <clears throat> generate out of our Google Vault, um, you know, the files that meant met the specific criteria that that the judge you know specified <clears throat> and people will say things like hey your email is saved for for five years but i don't know if if people really you know have that if that's been made concrete enough to say you know any 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 judge uh, in any kind of courtroom in the united states uh, can have an order to your organization and say i want to see every email that jason ever sent that had this word in it or that was to this person or that was, you know, in this date range or whatever. And that can, you know, become part of uh, official court materials that can become headlines and in the news, et cetera. So obviously Boeing is not very happy about these kind of things being released. And, you know, this makes for, I guess, attention economy journalism, right? Because we're going to pay attention to it. But but uh, I think we need to be doing a lot more, by the way, with email, with email skills. We need to stop assuming everyone, you know, will just be able to handle, you know, whatever quantity of email happens to come their way, process it efficiently and, you know, basically be an email ninja. And and that is not something we're, we're born with in, in our DNA. Um, I would bet, Jason, you probably have some very formidable email skills. You know, I know you've talked about some of the, you know, text shortcut things and sure. in, in ways because you, you process a huge amount. I wonder, and this would be a shout out for anybody listening, if you found something like this, I'd like to have some kind of a tool tracking. And this would be interesting even within the G Suite organization. Maybe the reports have this, but you know, on average, how many people you know, how many emails do people get per day? You could, if you just did this on a personal basis, it would be interesting. Um, because, you know, how many people do you know that if, if they open their email, they kind of want to hide it because they're, they're a little embarrassed about how many box, you know, emails are in their inbox because they've just really given up trying to keep that thing, you know, empty and, and inbox zero is just a, a fantasy. So have you, I know you've done sessions of, of, about different kinds of Google yep. tricks and stuff. Have you thought about writing a book about that? Like just a little short book of, you know, G, you know, Gmail ninja tricks. Maybe, maybe that's something that is already out there, but that it just seems like such an important skill that we're just going to have to keep with. It's not right. going away. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I, I've been talking email a, a lot lately with with other folks, and something we talk a lot about the Digital Academy is I'm I'm a really big fan of this notion that you've got to be extra nice in email. And, and to be clear, I, I don't always meet that challenge. If I rattle off a quick email, sometimes I come off as as rude and and curt and unnecessarily aggressive. And so, having been bitten by that more times than I care to say, I work really hard to make sure that my emails are overwhelming in their pleasant tone because emails are a really tricky thing. But it's funny because, you know, not all of the edu tech 
Twitter sphere agrees that email is a technology that's worth saving. Um, and, and it's not about individuals, but I, there's been a couple of people that, that make fun of colleges, for example, because, you know, they're, they're reporting that kids aren't opening their emails and they say, well, it's because kids don't use emails and you should text or uh, I, I don't know, TikTok them instead. But the bottom line is, is that first, that's not entirely true that kids don't use email. And in fact, when we send out, um, they're not really marketing emails, but when we use marketing systems to send out emails to the digital academy, our highest uh, opening rate happens to be students as opposed to parents or site facilitators. So that's, that's a piece of it. But also Manush Samarodi, the host of um, uh, ZigZag podcast, she's now the new host of NPR's uh, TED Radio Hour. She has a really interesting thing that she talks about that, you know, we, we have a lot of people wringing their hands about social media having all these negative impacts. We got a lot of us complain about our email, but I think you'd have a hard time making a case that email has been any more than an occasionally a nuisance. Right. It's a good, good, stable technology that's been around for 30 years now. And it's a good communication technology. It's not perfect, but it's a good communication technology. And um, I think it's something that that we should be mindful of and something I've been very impressed with, Wes. I know you posted your lessons for um, your upper elementary students that you taught on Gmail basics and the basics of using and, and writing and, and utilizing these tools. I think that's lost in a lot of schools and we're not teaching kids. And then we wonder why kids send rude emails. Right. And in a lot of cases, you know, things that um, and I probably put up with more than the typical teacher did when I was in the face to face classroom. But, um, you know, things that kids would say in jest in a classroom or because they felt comfortable in a classroom that was uttered in an email would be an outrage. And I, I think we do need to think about and spend more time. Um, you know, thinking about how this technology, which is not going anywhere, I don't care. Email has been apparently dying for 20 years and it's still around kids. So, you know, we have to deal with it in terms of, of the technology that's actually getting used. Here's two quick ones. Uh, this one was from a couple of weeks ago, but Ars Technica, January 6th. SpaceX is now the world's largest satellite operator. Crazy. Yeah. And, you know, what some people think Elon is doing uh, is basically setting the groundwork to, you know, be the world's largest Internet service provider, not only to, um, you know, be able to support, uh, you know, the fleet of, of Tesla cars that, re, you know, require updates and, and things like that. But, um, you know, my experiences have been very limited with satellite Internet, but it, it basically is really bad. It has been. And especially on an upload, you know, even the download has been really, really slow. Think, you know, edge and, and pre-edge uh, cellular network speed. So that was uh, a quick one that was of interest. And then this one's local, but, uh, the Oklahoman, which is our largest, you know, paper by circulation here in Oklahoma City yesterday published an article titled, They Want Them Gone. Norman Parents Complain of School Devices. And evidently there were about over a hundred parents at the school board meeting. Norman is a community south of Oklahoma City where the University of Oklahoma is located. And about a year ago, they started a one-to-one uh, learning initiative with iPads with younger kids and MacBook Air laptops for the olders. And so all kinds of complaints about pornography, about screen time, about cost. And I actually stayed up last night and wrote a little response to that. And, you know, won't go through the whole thing, but, but basically my summary is, you know, we need, if you have school provided devices to have a filtering solution um, of course, parent education is, is hugely important. And Norman schools have done a lot. Their, their initiative is called iTech. But, um, you know, the web of 2020 is not the web of 2005 or whatever, you know, you want to go back in time. And so um, it is, uh, I think there's a lot of frustration that we, like I mentioned earlier, that we have about not being able to protect students. And, um you know, when, when students have devices and they can, you know, access all kinds of things, we can even speak and, and do searches and things like that. We don't even have to know how to necessarily spell and write. You know, younger kids can do things. Um, it is uh, it, it remains a wild west. And I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, things that could be happening in any community in terms of, you know, angry parents about, you know, some of those kinds of issues. We've talked about some of those on the show and, you know, some things happen with uh, with laptops and, and objectionable content and things like that. 
Um, something I put in here too is, hey, don't forget the phone, right? Um, I, I did this research last night, quick Google search, but latest Pew Internet, I think from August of 2019, shows that about 95% of, of U.S. teens report that they have access to a smartphone. Now, they don't say what percentage of those phones are completely unfiltered, but based on my own experiences working with students and parents, I would say the vast majority. You know, there are a few folks that are doing things like Disney Circle Go um, and, and, you know, credit to both Google and, and Apple for putting in more parental controls and features. But, hey, you've got to enable those and set those up. Uh, and you got a parent, right? That's kind of hard to do. And so I think that parents that are just angry at school for all of this, you know, it, it, these are societal issues and it's not just, you know, it's not only, hey, my, my, my school, you know, either made us get one or, or bought, you know, a device that they've now sent home. So any, any thoughts on those? Yeah, there's a flip side to this, right? That, I mean, I, I think about it in terms when you say the, that, that Pew Internet number, that 95% of teens have access to some kind of mobile device, mobile internet device. Well, you know, 15 years ago, it was that, Teachers like us were in classrooms trying to help kids get more access to technology because it's become a critical tool and because it, 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 it can empower you to do some pretty amazing things. And on the other side of it, there was a massive digital divide, right? A lot of kids had home internet available. A lot of kids did not. And, um, you know, the one thing, the, the mobile phone you can say with, with little debate is that the vision of super nerds 30, 35, 40 years ago about a computer being in every home, the computer wasn't a laptop and, 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 and a desktop, although plenty of those do exist in homes today it's it's the mobile phone and it's a computer and it can do computerish things that that are quite amazing but you know the the notion from um the notion from spider-man right great power comes with great responsibility that has to be a part of of our of our tact and you know blaming schools alone when in a lot of cases you know uh, phones aren't being managed as they should with parents, uh, and the technologies you mentioned are good examples of that. That, that's a real critical issue. And I would also note too that in, in a shout out to you, Wes, I know that you run parent institutes at your school where you bring parents in and help them understand better the tech around them, whether it's a, a more practical topic like this or something perhaps a bit more creative that you can be doing that at your schools too. If you are listening to this podcast, my guess is you probably have some tech skills and probably know a lot about this arena and go to your administrator. If you're the administrator, do this. Uh, it doesn't need to be more than a, once every couple of months, but bring in parents to come look at the technology that you're handing out to kids. Have parents bring in their own phones or talk about things you can do to better lock things down in your home. Um, you're not going to find bigger advocates than the host of this podcast for more balanced filtering. I do think we overfilter the internet, but um, you know that doesn't mean that we would advocate opening it up to things that, that that teens really shouldn't have their eyes on. Right? Filtering is it can be a real uh, real uh, uh, gauntlet because oftentimes you're blocking things that are really legitimate things like tools the tool kids can use to create and connect. But that doesn't mean that, that you shouldn't be using some basic filtering software, right? Um, and, you know, finding ways to, to work with companies that are willing to help you, you know, eliminate access to things that truly don't belong anywhere in schools. I'm talking about obscenity and pornography. Um, but at the same time, open up tools so the kids can interact with one another. Um, but you can do that at home too. And the technology is not expensive. And as it turns out, unlike five years ago, there are multiple companies that will help you do it. And help you regain access so that you can help your kids make great choices with these powerful devices. We can maybe get to Wi-Fi 6 here in a second, but a couple other thoughts. We've talked on the show multiple times about the Internet of Things, how important it is to update your devices, you know, the benefits of getting uh, next-generation Wi-Fi. Uh, both Jason and I have upgraded at home. You know, we're using Google. I think we're both on Google Wi-Fi, right? You, you went with that as well. Look at Eero and other kinds of things, which Eero is now owned by Amazon. But, you know, it's made a huge speed difference, and these tools also have – you know, some, some built in tools as far as filtering. But of course, it's not just about what happens at home. It's also about what happens, you know, outside uh, of the home. Um, and I had another thought about that, but it has flown the coop as many thoughts seem to be doing lately as I'm approaching 
the uh, yeah the veritable age of fifty this year. So, uh, hey, what about Wi-Fi six? You got a Verge article there saying it's finally here. Sure. But does that mean it'll work on my device yet? Uh, so good question. Um, this is uh, following up an article we talked about probably I don't know four or five months ago. Wi-Fi six is the next generation of Wi-Fi. It has lots of interesting features to it. Not the least of which is that it has a large pipe, which means you can download things very quickly, large media files. It obviously can't speed up your internet, right? In that. Um, you know, if you have X amount of pipe coming into your house, X amount of speed from your cable modem, your um, fiber provider, if you're lucky enough to be in that that condition or DSL provider. Um, but what it can do is, you know, uh, allow uh, more consistent connections to for Wi-Fi devices, which means that you may end up seeing more speed or more of your Internet speed. But it's not universally available yet. Uh, there are finally some consumer level devices that have uh, this so-called Wi-Fi six. And I believe it's a Verge article that, that I threw into the, the show notes this week. It talks about the notion that stuff you might actually buy as a home user is finally getting there. It is interesting though, just because the standpoint that, you know, just because Wi-Fi, advanced Wi-Fi, uh, uh, technologies are now becoming, uh, uh, increasingly available, schools are a good example of this, that schools are not updating to new Wi-Fi systems every 18 months. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, it, it, if you are managing it right, you probably are doing broad Wi-Fi upgrades every four, five, maybe six years. But, you know, public Wi-Fi isn't going to get universally faster, but you can do better things at home. Let's hit a couple more security articles because I noticed there's several that you put in, and I totally want to talk about this one. I'm going to keep this in the show notes uh, that, where I said before, or I wrote before this, terrible password security advice. I'm, I'm guessing that most listeners are not regular readers of the South China Morning Post, but um, that that uh, venerable publication, which is not somebody's garage. I mean, this is legit mainstream yeah. media. Uh, January 14th, the article is called How to Protect Your Smart Home Devices from Hackers. Smart speakers, robotic vacuums, video doorbells, all are vulnerable. And I actually found this uh, looking for... Something that I had seen referenced about CES, um, and, and I found this article. But here is the paragraph that is just terrible. And hopefully your security professionals, IT directors, others are not giving this kind of advice. But this is in an article published this week. Uh, says this expert recommends consumers find a scheme for passwords that will help them remember a password, such as the words from a song you like. Then mix the words with lower and uppercase characters, numbers that are not repetitive and special characters, such as an ampersand, asterisk, or dollar sign. No, this is not what you should try and do, is try to remember all your passwords. Um, you know, I have hundreds <laughs> of passwords right now between school and home. It's it is ridiculous. It's crazy. You need to use a unique password, meaning a different password on every site that you, you have a password for. It needs to be very long and complex. So you should really use a generator to generate a random string of characters. And the only way to do that and, and be sane is to use a password manager like LastPass or 1Password or something like that. Um, and then also you're going to turn on your two-factor uh, authentication and optimally you're going to use a security key in order to, you know, provide a physical uh, insurance that it's not somebody who's even hacking your cell phone number or something like that. So that is a little bit of a rant, but hey, I've, we've, we've been ranting about password security for a long time. And I, you know, read that today. I was like, what? I just wouldn't have thought somebody was going to be making that kind of, of advice. Any other security? You've got a couple other ones that you put in there. Yeah, this is a really quick one, and it could be a rabbit hole, but I'm going to avoid jumping down it. Um, the NSA, which we early early days in our podcast, we've been what three, three and a half, almost four years now. Uh, in we 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 did talk about a lot of NSA articles earlier in our days, and one of the things we 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 spoke about was this notion of um, that NS, the NSA was finding exploits in hardware and software, and then using them to spy on people and 
maybe in a sign that the NSA is is uh, trying to be a little more balanced in their approach. The NSA found a massive hole in security in Windows, and instead of exploiting it to spy on people, they decided to contact Microsoft, and the hole was so big that Microsoft immediately issued a patch based on it. But, um, you know, lots lots of, of software holes, but I was encouraged to hear that the NSA was, you know, using their power for good. They're probably investing uh, untold gazillions of dollars in security research precisely to drive holes through those security holes, but I do think it's interesting that in this case they use their power for good. Yeah, and and these are good topics to talk about with students, right? Yeah. Zero day vulnerabilities. Uh, you know the, the the white hat hackers that are out there, the black hat hackers. Uh, you know, corporate. You know, government. Uh, we need, by the way, a new generation of of hackers to be defending our our nation. One of the things as we approach the precipice of uh, of open war with Iran was you know thinking about cyber attack and what are their cyber capabilities and. You know what kind of things you know might happen, and and so uh, yes, it is interesting to, to to hear about a current event like that. But let's think about how students, you know, great things to talk about, uh, great things to be discussing the the ethics of, and then thinking about how students might be plugging in with their uh, skills that they're moving into not only college but the workforce with. So we need to do our Geeks of the Week because I think it is the top of the hour. Jason, what do you have for us this week? Sure. Um, I have mentioned here a number of times in the past that I've been just getting a lot of delight uh, out of YouTube channels. I've found a lot of folks that that are, are, are YouTube hobbyists. They may get enough income to be able to support the videos that they do. But one of the, the channels I really like, it is uh, delightfully full of geekery. Uh, the gentleman's name is Luke. Nani is his name, and he has an interesting shtick. Um, he is an Apple enthusiast, a Mac enthusiast, and he buys uh, Macs from the last eight or nine years, and he refurbishes them to be used in the modern world, whether it's an old iMac or an old Mac Pro laptop. or We've talked about in the past that one of Apple's greatest uh, accomplishments is that you can oftentimes use a an old Mac uh, with very, very modern software without worrying about it slowing down speed because of the, the, the high quality of the hardware. But, you know, he does things like, you know, find uh, three or $400 Mac Pros. They're five or six years old, but he'll pull it apart. He'll upgrade the RAM and the, the hard drive and put a new battery into it. And for all practical purposes, it's, it's, it's a, uh, you know, a, a new Mac. And just a really interesting channel. I like it. It's it's fun to watch, and if you are kind of a hardware geek, um, I'm a many varieties of geek, and that's one of them. It's a great channel. So Luke Miani, excellent YouTube channel. There's also a wonderful Reddit community that I believe he also occasionally checks in on that kind of has that. If you want to buy a used Mac and refurbish it, what does it look like? Fantastic. So uh, two quick geeks of the week. My fastest one is a CES uh, reference. It's a company called twinkly and if you want to you know we've just gone through the christmas holidays but you know if you love uh love lights and you want to do all kinds of incredible things uh you know whether it's in your dining room bedroom wherever classroom perhaps then uh, you can order those on amazon and twinkly has an app and you can like have this all these lights and use your phone to paint with your finger and the lights will do what you you know paint on your phone and anyway it um will will bring um, you know, not Madison Garden, but uh, Times Square. If you want the Times Square, you know, overwhelming light experience, you know, in your own home or classroom, Twinkly is what you need. And then I have a podcast recommendation. So I've been listening to this one for a while. Uh, the podcast is called No Dumb Questions. And it is a show that is hosted by uh, Matt Whitman and then Destin, who does Smarter Every Day. That's a video. That's a podcast channel I absolutely love. But this is one they just do for fun. It's not uh, like, well, maybe they do all their stuff for fun. But anyway, it's a it's a collaboration, and uh, they have kind of their own channels that they do. But this one's together. And <clears throat> this episode's called "Did Humans Find Hawaii?" And it is fascinating. And it is about you know the the oral culture and tradition of Polynesia and Polynesian islands, but the ways in which. Uh, they learned and they, they cr basically created what was like a polar map. So the island, I mean, they would be able to know, 
you know, concentric circles, how far out, you know, these islands are, but the ways in which it wasn't just navigating by stars, but it was also with waves and the different words they had for waves and all of this and the history. They do a really fun job weaving, you know, history and technology and science and, you know, storytelling and all kinds of things. And I was interested, they, uh, a couple of years ago, I guess, or I don't know how long, started a Reddit, um, you know, I guess, I don't know what that, what is it called when you create a, a is it a Reddit? Subreddit. It's subreddit. There you go. Uh, and so I put a link and I'll have it in the show notes to their uh, discussion thread for that particular episode. But it's kind of interesting because, you know, they've got lots of fans and then folks will, you know, post questions and things like that. So they're using that as their threaded discussion forum to talk about their show. So they are uh, no dumb QS. So N O D U M B Q S is their Twitter. And that is fantastic. So Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday nights, where can folks find you online to glean additional tips, tricks and bits of wisdom relating to tech? Um, I send out a lot of tweets via Twitter. Tech Savvy Teach is my Twitter handle. I like to share. I read a lot about technology. It's interesting to me. And I like to share out things about what's going on in various arenas. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Blog.ncc.org is our blog address. And I would like to remind folks that early bird pricing for the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference, which is in March in Seattle, Washington, ends soon. So go to www.ncc.org. We have wonderful speakers this year and Plus, you can hear, I think I'm breaking three new presentations I've never done before at that conference this year. Really exciting stuff. Uh, the one I'm most excited, or two I'm most excited about is a presentation called Advanced Chromebookology. And I'm also doing a new presentation on reconsidering the notion of reading in the digital world and how we probably need to be a little more mindful of the fact that um, students bring to uh, you know our digital classrooms a certain set of reading skills that may or may not be ready for what the internet is throwing at them. What about you, sir? Awesome. I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I'm posting usually every uh, other week or something, a little post. And I am continuing to update my media literacy curriculum, which you can find on mdtech.cassidy.org. I'll have that link in the show notes. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I did have one of my four ISTE proposals accepted, and that was to talk about media and digital literacy in the middle school classroom. So that will probably be, assuming I can make the trip, um, something I'll be sharing this summer in Anaheim, California at the ISTE conference. Are you going to be ISTE bound this year, Jason? Uh, likely not. My proposal got rejected and um, unfortunately um, uh, funding's tight. So we'll see. I'd like to go. I think ISTE is a great place to go uh, and connect with folks, but if not, I'll just have to do it from afar. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's all that. There's not any other conference held that has more, you know, not at the conference events than ISTE. So please do follow us on Twitter. We are EdTechSR. Website is EdTechSR.com. Again, as Jason said earlier, I think you can check out all the links and show notes at our website, EdTechSR.com slash links. Follow us on YouTube. If you are moved by the spirit, we'd love you to uh, rate us on uh, Apple Podcasts, on other kinds of uh, podcast indices. If they give an opportunity, recommend us and reach out to us. Let us know if you enjoyed the show. And if you're a listener, we love to hear from folks. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe out there.